Um, when trying to come up with a, a topic to talk about today, uh, my mind went to the therapeutic relationship because I feel like that's something that's focused on heavily in supervision um, and training. But I don't know that I myself have given much attention past that point beyond um, the initial assessment of a media client, you know, trying to build the relationship. Um, but I think it's important to give some some attention to the therapeutic relationship ongoing, especially to um, times where there may be uh, issues that develop in it. Um, sometimes that happens and we don't recognize it. We, we might think that um, it's more related to uh, the modality that we're using, um, diagnostics, and I think it's just good to go back to basics. Um, you know, relationships are so important. We know that in our personal lives. And um, I think it's, it, it's the starting point, really. If you have a good relationship with your client, they're more likely to um, open up to you, to, to hear um, tools that you might present to them. So um, when we feel stuck, uh, I think that's a good place to turn. So I did um, some different research uh, to, to share with you all as well, just to kind of see what was available. And research pretty much uh, suggests what I'm saying as well, that their relationship is very impactful. It, um, it can make or break success in treatment. So um, some of the things that were, were mentioned in research that um, I want to talk with you all about today um, are critical incidents that patients describe as shaping the therapeutic relationship. Um, some of those would be things that we might not, not think of initially. Um, personally, I think about the, the tools I'm using as I'll prepare for a session and um, do, do a lot of research and, and think um, which theory am I going to operate out of. But um, some of the more small uh, interactions, small gestures that we have with clients can, can really have a, a stronger impact on them. Um, so some of the things that we'll mention are things like nonverbal communication. Um, I don't know how, um, how you all feel about it, but, but that's something that, to me that I think is so second nature that I don't, I don't have an awareness of a lot of times. You know, my, my nonverbal communication, um, body language, uh, even where we sit in the room. And I remember learning a lot about that in my training, but now that I've practiced for a while, uh, I don't think I pay enough attention to it. Um, it can be really telling for uh, how open a client is, um, you know, where they sit, if they face you, um, you know, straight on, if they're kind of uh, closed off. I think all of that can be good indicators to us how um, how ready they are to build a therapeutic relationship, um, and even areas to address in session, um, and in your own body language. Uh, you know, I think that's something for us to be mindful of as well. Um, you know, checking in with yourself before a session and thinking, how do I feel? Um, what's going on with me is important. Um, Sometimes I might be anxious from, from something else going on in my life or a previous session or stress. And 
and not aware of how that may be picked up on by my client um, without me even saying anything. Um, can you all think of any other nonverbal communication that uh, you could see as impactful in the therapeutic relationship? I know I've been real conscious. I tend to shake my foot. I shake my leg or I shake my foot. And it, it makes it look like I want to go somewhere and I don't really want to be here. So I have to be mindful. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> but sometimes I forget. I don't know. Yeah. Now that I'm going to be doing therapy in person versus telehealth, I'm going to be wearing a mask. And so that's mm. going to um, provide a different challenge, I think, in terms of being expressive, um, maybe with my eyes or um, just kind of building that trust with the client when they can't see um, my whole face and I can't see their whole face. So that's a, I don't know, I, um, yeah, I think it's just going to be an interesting um, challenge in terms of really uh, using that body language um, to communicate in, in, along with the verbal um, in that sense with the mask. I'd like to, I'd like to piggyback on something Megan was just saying, on a positive side. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, and as I talk with other folks, some others have as well, because we're wearing masks, or hopefully we're wearing masks, we are actually focusing more on people's eyes, and you know the eyes are the windows to the soul, they say, and what I'm observing for myself is I am much more attentive to eyes and what the eyes are telling me in terms of body language. Typically beforehand, I think, you know, there's something culturally for us to not avoid eye contact like some cultures, but to minimize or limit so it's not like we're staring. So we would take in maybe the face, facial features and, and grimace and stuff and pick up on that body language, but I think we were less attentive to the eyes. And I think the masks have now forced us to be more attentive. And I think it's a great thing and we can certainly build on that in the future to keep looking at the eyes because now maybe people will feel less like we're staring because they're used to people seeing their eyes because of the masks. And not to put Kylie on the spot, but she does EMDR, so I'm sure she's always appreciated looking at the eyes, but I, I think this is a new tool for us to pay more attention to the eyes. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think another element of necessarily body language, but nonverbal communication that's really important is just the tone of voice too. Like you can hear a lot um, of somebody's truth, their energy, just from the way that their their voice changes. Um, so that's an element that I've I've always been like pretty keen on, but I've noticed myself spending more time listening to what's the nuance in the tone of the voice. And also, how I'm conveying that to people, too. Because um, that can be a thing that even over video we can um, use to our advantage. Absolutely. Thank you all for sharing. Does anyone else have any, anything about to share in regards to non-verbal communication? I um, was learning a little bit about gestalt therapy and it you need to notice the whole thing and to actually comment on that. And a lot of times when I see people, I just notice it, but I don't say anything, you know? And, and so I've learned to say now, um, 
well, that really caused you to tear up. I, I, what's going on here? You know, or before I'm like, ooh, they're crying. I'm not going to bring that to their house. I'll just ignore it, you know. But, and so that's helped because then they get that, you know, hey, you're paying attention, and then they comment deeper, you know, or or you really hunch back on that, you know, but to actually instead of just noticing that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a really good point. Um, and, and being able to use as a, 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 a therapeutic tools, really, you know, to, to bring awareness to, to things that clients might not see in themselves. Um, and also have an awareness of, of our own emotional state through, through those um, observations as well. Um, you know, I think even, even being aware of breathing, um, I, I, since during this research, even um, working with clients, I've been more mindful of when I notice clients taking a big sigh um, or even holding the breath when we're talking about different things. And drawing attention to that can, can draw attention to things that, that they're not even aware they're doing mm -hmm. uh, and give them some more insight. So um, I think that you know, nonverbal communication can, can really uh, be useful in our practice um, some other critical incidents mentioned by uh, different patients were things like active listening, which, um, you know, is, is kind of bedrock in, in counseling. I think we, we, we all are trained to do that. Um, but, but again, it, for me, and I, and I imagine for many other providers, it's something that I uh, focused on heavily in my training, and, and now I don't really think about it in my sessions. I, I just, Think I, I hope I do it. <laughs> um, and so uh, just being mindful of how we're reflecting and summarizing what the, the client's saying, um, even our um, just our own um, uh, affirmations to what they're saying, and you know, uh, with the sounds we make in response, even I think can can be something to be mindful of. When we laugh, uh, I. I laugh a lot in, in my personal life. I, you know, um, I laugh when I'm nervous. And, and I, I think being aware of when that comes up in, in sessions, both in clients and in myself, you know, sometimes we laugh to avoid talking about something that's really uh, you know, emotional for us. We don't want to express those feelings, we just laugh it off. And, and so, um, you know, even pointing it out to client, like I noticed you laughed, but that was something that sounded really sad to me, you know, and, and, and help me understand the connection there. Um, so, so all of that's a part of active listening, um, and I think useful um, in building a relationship. And then this next one I, I thought would be a good uh, thing for us to, to discuss is self-disclosure, uh, because I think there's a lot of different um, approaches to that, a lot of different beliefs about how much we should disclose um, about ourselves. Um, personally, I, I find that it differs from, from session to session and client to client. Um, and, and so there's there's some clients that I, I think that I've shared more about myself with than others when I found that I, I thought it would be therapeutically beneficial to them. Um, but of course that's that's a judgment call for each therapist in the moment. And so I was curious what your all's uh, input on self-disclosure is. I 
I think the longer we see somebody, sometimes there gets to be a more comfort that maybe we'll share something that fits, you know, that new person or something, not gonna kind of self-disclose anything that maybe, but you know, sometimes I've seen people for quite a long time, so I might be more likely to share something. And then sometimes I thought, oh my gosh, I shared too much, I'm gonna stop that, you know? So I caught myself like, maybe, cause you know, that point of are you, you know, is this about you or them? And I realized, oh, I may be. And so recently, I really did that. I thought, I think that was more about me. And it made me really step back and think, I gotta be careful what I do. Can I say something about the laughter? I kept picking the wrong thing. When I was new, I will never forget, I can see where I was sitting, I can see the client, I can see everything but I was tending to laugh. And she called me out on my laugh. And, you know, and it really, and like she was about ready to quit, I think. And I was, you know, young. <laughs> and I just remember her calling me out on that and really understanding it. And then we moved forward and I worked with her and it was great. But she really helped me by being willing to call me out on that and make that nervous laughter and everything and being able to catch myself. Cause I sometimes would do that. You know, and so I was always thankful that she did call me out of my that nervous laugh and trying to, you know, I felt like I was able to control of that more now. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to share that. No, that's a great point, and and something that um, we're going to touch on as well is, is, is feedback, and, and that's an aspect of feedback um, that can be so helpful. You know, and when you think about relationships, I think that that's how we, we you know, in couples therapy and. Um, in family therapy, we, we, we talk about feedback a lot, you know, just um, hearing from the other person how um, the interaction effect, affected them, how they interpreted it. And, and um, the therapeutic relationship should be included in those discussions as well. Um, and sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in, in that vulnerable position. Um, that was one of the other uh, Things mentioned by patients that, that they describe as shaping the, the therapeutic relationship is being open to personal criticism. Um, and I don't know how many of you have experienced criticism from a client. I, I, you know, I think I have experienced that at times, um, be it on the, the, the tools that we're using, the progress of the treatment. Um, you know, it, it can be on so many different things. and. And like Denise was sharing, it, it can help us to grow and become better therapists, but it's hard to hear sometimes. Um, so do you want to have anything to share about uh, openness to criticism? I, I think one thing that, um, about being open to criticism, and I, I'll speak as a gender person here, um, with my experience managing male clinicians, um, at least it's been my experience that men are much more resistant to receiving feedback from clients um, as, as opposed to female and other gender folks. Um, uh, I think my struggle has been encouraging, and this is the truth myself, being mindful of soliciting feedback from clients. Good clients do not want to complain. Good clients, good clients typically don't want to give constructive feedback. You've got to really you know, open yourself, you've got to initiate and open yourself up to that opportunity by asking the question, you know, is there anything that we've done that you didn't like? Is, you know, how, how was our relationship? You know? and, that, and I'll throw that back into like feedback from, so we're, we're soliciting feedback from clients, um, but to roll it back to therapist self-disclosure, 
And I know Irvin Yalom is a big self-disclosure fan. Um, and in my mind, it helps me to make a, you know, to differentiate between here and now disclosure, like what's going on in the room within myself. So you know, what we might call counter-transference, but really my my reaction to what's going on. Wow, you know, um, just seeing you, you know, struggle with this, I, I feel some sadness. You know, that's that's self-disclosure versus you know, something that's outside of the here and now, like historical, where I may want to normalize the client's experience by revealing, wow, you know, years ago I struggled with the same thing and it was a challenge. Um, but, I, you know, you might, but you're doing it with a purpose, like I'm you're trying to normalize, you might be trying to instill some hope. Um, and then I think the research, if I recall correctly, on self-disclosure is pretty solid. You're priming the pump to build, not to, to increase disclosure from clients because you've already modeled how, how to do it. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it, it's cheap, I almost in my mind, it's like it's cheap and dirty um, because if you do it, it, it's pretty effective. But I think we've spent a lot of time potentially, you know, wondering who are we doing this for? Like, am I doing this for myself versus knowing, no, the research is really solid on this. Like, the odds of me harming the client through self-disclosure or if I'm monopolizing the conversations, if I'm a decent therapist, it's going to be pretty low. Um, and it, 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 it can be useful. Absolutely. I, I personally, for my own, I do go to a therapist, and um, she has self-disclosed something, and then at the end of the session, she made sure to address that. She's like, you know, I self-disclosed on this, and I want to know how that made you feel. Um, and I thought that was really... Um, it made me feel really um, good um, because it kind of brings it back to that professional, and not that what she shared was not professional, but she wanted to make sure that that was okay for me and I was getting some benefit out of that. Um, so I thought that was important. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of handling um, situations to get feedback and, and see. We, we, we all have different perspectives and, and hear things through different different ex experiences that we've had. And so it's wonderful to check in with clients of um, how did this, this moment affect you? What, what are you taking away from our session today? Um, what was uh, something that was helpful to you? What was something that wasn't helpful? Um, I think that those not only help us to be better therapists and have more effective work, it, it helps build the relationship with the client because we're including them in the process. Um, and I think that that touches on another one of the critical incidents mentioned, and that's um, emphasis on, on choice, you know, having them be a part of their therapy, um, which makes me kind of think of the different models we've seen of the therapist-client relationship you know, well, how are we portraying ourselves? How are we being viewed? Is it as an authoritative figure or, you know, a, a, um, an expert? Uh, are we uh, equals? You know, um, I think that all affects the relationship and, and what clients are willing to share. Um, some other things mentioned uh, are encouraging comments. Um, that was one that I think again, we we just it's just part of our, our nature, our personality. We we might do them, but but I don't know how often in a session I'm intentional about doing those uh, those kinds of comments to 
to encourage my clients, um, uh, touching on their victories and condoning on those. Um, I think that that is, is so beneficial in, in just uh, assisting them in being comfortable and um, having self-awareness. Um, and then one that I thought was interesting that was mentioned was greetings and farewells. Uh, and I don't know if you, do some of you have uh, go-tos, uh, like do you always say hello to clients in a certain way or goodbye? Um, do you wrap up your sessions in, with a certain phrase? Um, I, I noticed that I, I do that. <laughs> I'm I in sessions kind of the same way with every client, with you know, every every time. Um, you know, I say, well, looks like our time's about up. <laughs> um, and then I might say something like, you know, what can you take away from today? Um, when would you like to come back? And um, I, I was just wondering if, if you all noticed any uh, uh, commonalities in, in your approaches. I think something I'm intentional about doing towards the end is not saying, like, I hope you have a good week or I hope you have a good day, particularly for like clients that are struggling or depressed, because then it kind of puts this expectation. So I think something more of like, you know, I hope you find opportunities for self-care or you know, that you can have peace through the weekend. Um, just to kind of let them know that it's okay if they're still struggling next time. I started asking clients, and I've been doing it for a while, but I say, is there something else you'd like? I feel like we've always covered, and I looked for five minutes, is there something else you'd like to tell me? Is there something else, you know, something somehow worth that? And I'm always shocked when they think about something to leave. I mean, it, but it's quick, it's nothing long, but it's just something else that they needed to say that somehow by just asking that question. You know, it, it's never long, but it's just something that, yeah, something else you want me to know or something. That, oh, yeah. And so that's always been really, like, valuable to me to make sure I say that to them. And usually it's it's not. And sometimes I'll have to say, well, that's something we've talked about next week. But typically it's something right then, right there they want to say, and we're done. It's good. Yeah, I think so. so it's a bit of a, I'm sorry, but I think I had. Oh, I some, some things that I've done, especially after building more of that rapport and relationship with a client is opening up the session of what have you learned about yourself this week? Um, just as a, a way for them to, to do some self-reflection um, and kind of bringing up um, things that they want to um, in, that, in that session. So sometimes I'll open it up. Um, like I like that, I'm gonna use it. <laughs> Um, along those lines as well, I think, um, you know, that we're talking about, about the greetings and farewells, but, but I, I think following up with um, asking, you know, at some point in the session, just checking in with them about how they're feeling about the therapeutic relationship. I know when I do intakes, I, I address with um, new clients how the, the therapeutic relationship is so important, and if, you know, it's um, important to find a therapist that you feel comfortable with and, and that's a good fit for you. And if I'm not that person, that that's okay. But then I don't follow up uh, <laughs> after several sessions to say, well, how are you feeling about it now? Now that um, we've spent some more time together. Um, and so that's a, a takeaway that I've had recently that that should be an ongoing conversation um, because the relationship's evolving. So they, they may feel that it's a good fit 
in the intake, but then you know later down the road maybe it's not, and and that might be something to address. So um, another thing mentioned as uh, a critical incident is validation of feelings. Um, that's been something that research has, has indicated. Clients mentioned frequently as um, building the therapeutic relationship and finding uh, finding success through therapy is feeling that they're, they're or seeing that their feelings were validated uh, by the therapist. Um, and so, being mindful to do that um, throughout our work with clients, uh, as an in, in intention to to help connect with them and, and build the relationship. Um, I think sometimes we can become, I, I know I can be so focused on goals that we have or um, you know, different uh, issues that they've brought up that um, I might miss validating their feelings, which I feel like is, you know, so important to, to the therapeutic work. Uh, how could I miss that? But I, I think it happens from time to time. So um, those were, that's all the critical incidents that, um, that I discovered in the research. Uh, but there were other things mentioned that I thought were important to, to touch on. Um, things like friendliness, uh, unconditional positive regard, collaboration. We talked about collaboration a little bit. Um, but I think just being mindful of the unconditional positive regard, we all know about it from, from our, our you know, studying and work. but. Uh, I know I struggle with that sometimes, and, and maybe you all do too, uh, when different things arise, maintain that state. Um, so moving on though, uh, the next section that I wanted to talk about was feedback. We've already touched on that a little bit. Um, so you can get feedback in the session. We've talked about that. Uh, pretty thoroughly so far, you know, with the immediacy, asking questions, how is this affecting you? Um, what are you finding helpful? What are you not finding helpful? Uh, what will you take away from today? Uh, other options, though, that um, could be useful are, are using outcome questionnaires. Um, and so I was wondering if you all have made use of those, having uh, questionnaires for, for clients to complete. I was gonna say, our, where I work at the advocacy center, there's a lot of grant funding, so there's tons of outcome surveys and mm -hmm. what did you like, what are you needing, you know, so, and, and that is helpful to be able to see that. They're all anonymous though, so <laughs> sometimes I want to know, wait, 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 who gave this feedback so I could address that? But, doesn't work that way, but it, but it does help for me to think, how can I change things in things a little differently? Yeah, um, and, and one of the facilities that I've worked at, that, um, we use some some outcome questionnaires uh, as part of um, a graduate student's research, and I found that so beneficial. It was something I never thought to do, um, and, and as I was saying, it was anonymous, but. Uh, I was able to collect feedback from, you know, several different clients and, and, and uh, saw some trends, you know, things that I could, could improve on, things that I was doing that they were finding helpful. 
But the, the session floor itself is something that uh, I've heard from several clients that they had expectations that may differ from what actually happens. Uh, you know, that can be from pop culture, uh, that can be from, you know, previous experiences that they may expect the therapist to read and do all the talking and ask some questions. Uh, or they may expect the opposite that um, that we give them before and let them talk a couple times. Um, so I, I found that useful in um, intakes to, to ask you know, what your experience of therapy uh, is coming here, what's your expectation of um, how the discussion will go. And you know, another thought of that is to explain that in, in the intake. Uh, just tell them, you know, this is a collaborative conversation. Um, you know, that this is kind of how I experience it. Uh, have you all done that before when it takes to, to talk about this assessment flow? Absolutely. <laughs> There's been some feedback. I don't know if everybody can maybe use their mic if they're not talking because it's kind of hard to hear you there, Hillary. But I think we got it. Um, but I think, yeah, absolutely setting up the framework at the beginning. Um, just to say like, and to kind of add on that, I think people that have done therapy before too is also kind of interesting because they're coming in with baggage from, you know, what their therapist did or didn't do and how it was helpful or not to kind of have an expectation of how you're going to do it. And so I like to ask like from the beginning, have you done therapy before or not? What you, like, what did you like from that therapist and what did you not like? And how can we um, make this helpful and productive for you? Um, but I do like to kind of have that expectation of we're both going to do some work here. Like, you don't just get to come in and bend, or I'm not here to be your best friend. Um, things like that. Yeah, I work a lot with teenagers, and, and so I find that helpful as well to um, set up some expectations for the, the interaction as well. Um, and to challenge some expectations that, that may be already in place. Uh, you know, I'm not a teacher, I'm not your parent, I'm not a doctor, you know. Um, it, it can be hard for someone that's never been in therapy to conceptualize what that will be like. And, and needing something to, to compare it to, having a frame of reference, I think um, is, is useful to them, and um, especially young people. So, um, you know, uh, I think with, with uh, the beginning of, of therapy, you know, that, that those are important things to do. And then uh, what obstacles do you see as therapy's gone on to the therapeutic relationship? Maybe you've worked with someone for, you know, four or five sessions and, and you hit a wall. Um, that, that was kind of what brought this uh, to my attention is, is my inclination is to look at what tools have, have I been giving them I stress and research and think, I need new tools, I need to try different theory. And, and really, it, it might just be you know, the, the, the baseline of how our therapeutic relationship, how the interactions um, sitting with the client. Have you all experienced um, times when you've, you've noticed that was the, the block in therapy? For sure. I think it's always interesting too when someone comes in, maybe like, I've got this like big trauma in particular that I want to talk about, and but they're not comfortable at first. 
and it's kind of hard to gauge that. Okay, like, like when's the point that, you know, are we getting towards more trust and safety so we can get to that goal of maybe talking about that or not? Um, and I think it's really, it's been really interesting in my experience, like after, like kind of what you have the framework, you said like three to five sessions where it's like, okay, we've been talking about coping skills and stress at work, but we've not come back to the thing that you came in for. Like, you know, is that still a goal for you? How do we get there? Because sometimes people just, you know, they mentioned it at first, but it's not brought back up and they don't know how to, even though it's usually kind of in the back of their mind that they know they still want to. Um, and I'm just talking about if you know you're still intimidated and fearful or whatever, you know, what can help build more trust. So I've noticed that like that in particular being an obstacle and um, you know, if there is something with the the trust that's being built, then you can name it and find some ways to work with it. Yeah. So getting that information from the client gives you the ability to to address it. Um, and along those lines as well, I think some other obstacles in, in therapy um, that we should be mindful of is um, transference issues. You know, um, are, are they having some transference within um, the review of us? Or are, are we having power transference? Um, both, I, I think, can really hinder the relationship. So, um, and, and it can be like the elephant in the room. Uh, you know, I, I think as we're, we're talking about uh, these different obstacles that can come up, it can feel so awkward to, to address them. And and uh, I think that can be our hesitancy. It's, well, I just, I don't wanna make things awkward. <laughs> I don't wanna um, ruin the, the flow. And, and I hear that from clients all the time as well, like that they, that they have a problem in a personal relationship, something that they, maybe need to address, but they pull back because they don't want to disrupt what's, what's currently happening in the relationship. Um, so I think we're just, we're very human in, in that regard. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would rather just ignore it sometimes than, than address it, but is that what's best for the client? And so, um, you know, having the awareness of uh, the, the elephant in the room and then presenting it to the, the client, um, so it's twofold. Um, and with, with counter-transference, uh, I think having a, tools in place to help us work, work through counter-transference is so important. Um, being in therapy ourselves, uh, being in cohorts, um, having some, somewhere that you can process your response to the sessions. Um, I know that another thing that therapists may deal with, because I think we um, have high levels of empathy, you know, is, is feeling like we're carrying other uh, people's emotions with us. You know, you might be in a session with someone that's really angry and they feel like you carry that over to the next session, um, or sadness, or you know, things like that. I, I know that there have been times when I've had a really intense session um, and felt like I wore the client's emotions home, <laughs> for, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and so just being able to separate ourselves from that and um, have somewhere to process it, or, or even just doing a, a, a self-check-in, 
she said, that's not mine, you know, and, um, and decompress after, after a session before we go into the next one. Uh, I think that that can be hard with our, our busy schedules, especially in the midst of a pandemic and doing telehealth and, you know, um, it can be hard to, to process for ourselves how the session affected us. Have you all experienced that as well? Yeah, so um, the therapy can be useful, cohorts. Um, some other things that I think uh, can be useful for, for therapists is to manage their, their own emotional response, um, things like journaling. So the, the same thing we, we recommend to our clients can be useful to, to us, but, but how often do we actually practice them? Um, you know, some self-care, journaling, exercising, um, you know, spending time with family and friends. And I think that all of that, while we might not see it having an impact on our, our relationships with our clients, um, it absolutely does. So, um, yeah, I guess for self-care that, that you all have, um, aside from the ones I've mentioned, that you find help you to be more present in, in sessions. Movement, even I'm just sorry. like movement, yes, like even just energetically to um, sometimes in, in my apartment or in my office, I'll just move to a different location for the next session um, or get up and walk outside with some new breaths. Um, but there's something about like movement that energetically just kind of, I think, allows me to release some of whatever those emotions I might have kind of. Um, I like that language you like that you were wearing. Um, I think that's great. Being able to exercise if it's available, you know, even going for a walk, you know, where you're located. Um, movement can be so useful just, just in um, stress management as well. I think I'm just curious. It helps me a lot if I'm stuck and it's real stressful and it's, it's to be able to um, process that with other therapists, you know, and to say, hey, I'm really hit a wall, what do you do here? And and sometimes it's just neat for them to say, I would have done the same thing, you know, or, you know, or sometimes you start, um, I know I was talking to another of our therapists and they said, do you ever start doubting that what we're doing is happening sometimes, you know, and sometimes I did that as well. I know, um, I use play therapy and a big thing is trust the process, trust the process. Well, every once in a while I'm like, <laughs> what if that's not working? But I don't know how to handle that with HIPAA regulations. You just can't process with anybody. I didn't know how that worked. That helps me a lot. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, being mindful of HIPAA to not, uh, you know, um, disclose confidential information, but but also being able to use resources like um, cohorts and um, supervision if you're in it uh, and, and your own therapy and, and talking about your own experience with it, you know, I think is, is uh, what's often really needed anyhow. You know, um, I think with, I know I, I might focus on the, the details of the session and think about how um, that's what's impacting me, but, but it might be more related to my own um, life situations and you know how I'm how I'm feeling in the session and especially with countertransference, uh, you know, you, you might consider how um, it 
it hits you from a past experience that you've had and need to process that as opposed to the session even. So um, I found that useful. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a part of uh, self-care and, and good practice to uh, be able to consult as well with, um, with colleagues. So, um, yeah, I think there's a way to do that and, and still being mindful of PIPA and respectful confidentiality. I agree that's very important and it's really hard um, being out of supervision and working by myself, you know, it's really hard. So sometimes I have run things over to Ray, you know, again, just to have it or with some other therapists that work at colleges too, so I can give generalities about what they would do, you know, because it is harder when you work by yourself and not have that kind of support when I used to work with other people. Absolutely, working on by yourself in public practice um, or in an individual office, but, but, but also I think from the pandemic, so many uh, therapists have been working independently, very isolated at home um, that may have been used to being a part of an agency or a practice where they would at least have a, a therapist in the hallway. Maybe you don't even have a discussion, but just uh, you know, seeing a, a familiar face that you know um, had similar experiences, I think can be comforting. So, um, or that someone that you could reach out to if you needed to. Um, so, so we have to be creative and intentional um, to, to get those resources uh, in, in the situations that we're in now. Uh, but I think that if it does impact our therapeutic relationships um, and, and can give us so, such beneficial insight and awareness that we may not have had just on our own. So um, yeah, other obstacles that I thought about uh, that I, I've recently experienced, and, and I don't know uh, if you all have had similar experiences, but putting my foot in my mouth <laughs> um, in session, uh, it just happens from time to time. I notice if my, my stress levels are high, if I'm feeling anxious and, and I haven't done my self-care, I haven't checked in with my, myself before having a session, um, it, that, that might be a, a, a me thing, but that's that's something that happens with my anxiety is I'll say the wrong thing um, and then second guess it um, and, and stress about it. And and so uh, I, I thought about how that could be an obstacle in the, the therapeutic alliance uh, that we may say something just totally not what we intended that really could offend the client or uh, just cause them to, to be more distant. Um, so, you know, uh, I think it's hard work, but going back and, and uh, processing that with him uh, to say, you know, I, I just want to apologize for uh, what I said last time, I, you know, really put my foot in my mouth, that wasn't what I was intending to say. I think that's, you know, useful in repairing the relationship, but also in, uh, you know, normalizing their own experience, because we all do that from time to time. And if, if they see, hey, my therapist puts her foot in her mouth <laughs> occasionally, um, you know, I think that that can help us to strengthen our relationship. So, um, any other obstacles that, that you all can think of that you address? I think sometimes, I know Hillary, you work with kids who sometimes just parents. <laughs> yes. I don't know, and that's sad, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's a good point because working with minors, you're also working with parents. So, so it's a you know, there's more people in the dynamic to consider. There's more relationships to consider. Your relationship with the parents, your relationship with the, the client, and your relationship with each other. Um, I think that that it's they all interplay, and it's um, something to, to give attention to. And, and not just with, um, with kids, I, I don't do couples therapy, but I, I imagine some of you do. And, and, and so that's a whole other arena to consider um, the different relationships that interplay in, in couples therapy. So addressing obstacles with, uh, with part of the, the, the therapy uh, relationship there, you know, the, 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 the one party of it, um, maybe it's both. Uh, I think that that could be something that could be easy to ignore or miss um, just because of uh, focus on the presenting issue. Um, something um, that I'm thinking about that happened to me, like you were saying, sometimes we have common um, greetings and farewells. I think sometimes we also have common um, um, sayings or phrases that we that says to them that we're listening. Like, okay, sure, yes, I hear you. Um, mm -hmm. And I was noticing, actually, this was pointed out to me that I say sure a lot, and that is my indication that I'm tracking with you. Mm -hmm. Well, a client had told a peer advocate or a case manager that she felt like I wasn't listening because of that. And um, she didn't want to see me anymore, and thankfully she gave that feedback to the case manager that asked for that feedback. Um, but I, I was thinking about that. Sometimes our phrases to even state that we are listening can be dismissive <laughs> at times. And I didn't realize it was so automatic for me, um, and that created a little bit of an obstacle. Um, but then our job is to, whenever there's a rupture, I think repair, right? Rupture, repair, rupture, repair, and we can model um, that healthy conflict um, and develop and grow that relationship um, once knowing that feedback. Um, Absolutely. That'll make me next week be more, what am I saying? <laughs> and you're you know, nodding, you're trying to be with them. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure. No, I'll think about that. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, all of these um, topics that we discussed are important to be mindful of uh, in our interactions, but also to not um, create self-consciousness in, in sessions. Uh, I think it, it's keeping it in balance because uh, we could easily obsess about them as well, and and um, that would make it hard to, to focus on the relationships. I think another obstacle that has been helped from COVID is transportation that people have limited. But then on the other side now, we're expecting people to have the technology. And so in some ways then, you know, poor Wi-Fi, poor, um, you know, camera, microphone, um, that's another obstacle um, that kind of goes that thing. And then I've noticed a really interesting one for the past year is um, 
So oftentimes people are coming in wanting to vent about their family members, but the family members in the next room, so they can't. And so a really interesting, um, I have found myself asking a lot more close questions to try to get at like the thing that they can't necessarily have open questions or open answers about. Like, is it about your mom? Is your mom in the other room? You know, like, yes, no, yes, no. So they can still feel like they're hurt on those things without having to talk about them openly. It's been a kind of strange dynamic. I don't know if anybody else has noticed that too. Yes, absolutely. And even how um, technology issues kind of affect the, the relationship. You know, I think so much, so much of our interactions have been moved to um you know calling and emailing uh for scheduling and and then um having virtual sessions and and um for some clients i think that that can cause uh ruptures in the relationship it, it, it just in a way that that's done if uh we're not responding to them quick enough um or you know thinking about our language in phone conversations you know emails things like that and uh, just being attentive to still show um, show that we're listening and um, that we we are um, attentive to their needs. I think something too that um, was pointed out with the teletherapy um, is people are there sometimes, and that includes children. Children being home from school, um, and so when I would work with parents, sometimes there would be that constant interruption and I don't that's I just learned to roll with it because that's just what we have to do and um and just pick up right where we left off but I, I think sometimes it can be an obstacle to um within that therapy session when you know, other people children are, are present I guess and there's no workaround around that <laughs> when being at home from school so I don't mind the cats and the dogs, but the kids seek in the way a little more. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, in closing, just uh, having some awareness of obstacles uh, and, and ruptures and, and trying to repair them, but also a, a takeaway that I'm having from our discussion is, is the importance of our own self-care our own therapeutic work to, to process our re reactions and responses to sessions and clients um, so that we can uh, go back in and, and be at a place where we can connect with them. Well, thank you all. Um, I've, I've enjoyed uh, having this discussion with you all and, and learning from, from each of you and, and getting to know you all. Good reminders, thank you. Thanks, Thank, yeah. you Thank you, Hillary, for providing some great information and for co-facilitating a, a great discussion here. Uh, very informative. A couple things in closing. Uh, one, since Thad isn't here to be uh, the pusher of this announcement, I'll push it again since he already did. But we're always looking for speakers. Don't have to be polished. It can be an informal discussion. Uh, providing and sharing information about some books or articles related to counseling that you've shared, etc. We don't bite. We're friendly, so don't be fearful. Um, not to put her on the spot, but I'll mention Valerie. She always says, oh, I, I'm 
anxious about presenting and she's one of our best presenters. People continue to, to rave about her sharings and all. Um, and so I'm gonna post again some announcements to make sure because sometimes if you got disconnected or came back, whatever, you don't see the previous in the chat, but it's there. It's got our social media contacts, Facebook and the website. We ask you to share those on your social media to help get the word out there. Also, if you want to be listed in our directory, it's free advertising. Send me the information. My email is there. And um, let me see what I put on here. Oh, yeah, the most important thing is complete today's evaluation, number two, um, that link to the SurveyMonkey. It uh, evaluates the presentation and then has like four quiz-type questions related to the content. So if you do it now while it's fresh in your mind, Quite frankly, we don't grade these, so you could get them all wrong, but it's participation by doing them and reflecting. Uh, and that's just how we uh, can justify giving our certificate. Um, folks have participated and interacted. But that is how you'll get your certificate, so be sure and complete that, because the last item asks for your preferred name and your correct email address, and then Thad will email your certificate. He is a little behind on that. He's had a lot of stuff going on, but he has to listen. You will get them. And uh, if you don't, Denise, hit him up again. <laughs> but no, he'll work on that. Well, thank well, you all. Now, now I know that the, you don't have some of the right answers. But one attachment, <laughs> I don't know. I watched it. I had PowerPoint, and I still couldn't answer the question. Well, oh, I didn't do the evaluation, but I knew, and I watched it have PowerPoint. I mean, I even say things. But the questions were like, I don't know what they're asking. So I feel like I should get points for those because I you my notes. You know, that's my perspective. I don't know if it's Thad's. However, again, we borrowed that standard. I don't like the quiz questions. Um, but that's what the national groups that give certificates do on telehealth only. Not on live presentations, and that's kind of crazy to me, but on tele telecommunication like this. So we've put it there so nobody can question their certificate hour you get. Um, it's up there with the NBCC and other organizations. So that's why we modeled it that way. But once we get back to face-to-face, -to -face, there'll be no more quiz questions. But yeah, if you get them wrong, there's nothing in our standard that says you have to get them right, but just answer them. Um, yeah, I want some old quizzes. <laughs> there, there you go. All right. Um, well, actually, email me for any you want, Denise, and I'll send you those. Okay, you all take care, and we'll see you next month. Next month, I'll present a second uh, ethics presentation. I'm not sure what angle yet. I just got hit up to do that today. But it'll be our second ethics one, and then before the end of the year, we'll have a third ethics one, so you can get all three ethics credits in one year free. All right, take um, care. Oh, I'm going to let you all know I'll send the um, links to the website that I found the research on as well in the chat. Um, I just want to be able to have that information, so I'll send that Awesome. Right awesome. <laughs> and if you'll, if you'll send that to me, Hillary, I can post it. I'm going to put the audio up on our website, so okay. I can post those links as well if you want. They're not in APA format. They're just links to the website. <laughs> it doesn't matter. We don't care. We're informal. All right. Thank you all. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you.